Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 10, verses 16 through 43, and can be found on page 158 of your pew Bible. Joshua chapter 10, verses 16 through 43. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makedah. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makedah, he said, Roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man, but the few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makedah, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees, and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. That day, Joshua took Makeda. He, he put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors, and he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Makeda to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everything in it Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Libna to Lachish. He took up positions against it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel, and Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword, just as he had done at Libna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Gezer, came up to, to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. Then Joshua and all Israel went with him and moved on from Lachish to Eglon. They took up positions against it and attacked it. They captured it on that same day and put it to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it, just as they had done in Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel went with him up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword, together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors. Just as at Eglon, they totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all Israel went with him, turned around, and attacked Debir. They took the city, its king, and its villages, and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king as they had done to Libna and its king and to Hebron. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left, no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded. Joshua subdued them to Kadesh Barnea, to Gaza, and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. 
All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, This morning we're going to start with a brief video, if we could have the lights off. But I wanted to introduce it just momentarily. The video is, if you have a sensitive heart, the video is gross. You may not want to watch it. It's only uh, 30 seconds, but it is brutal. Uh, I show it only because it helps to acclimate ourselves to this passage, but forewarned is forearmed. So could we have the lights and then the video? Ten years ago, in the small East African country of Rwanda, 800,000 people were slaughtered by their own government. This was ordinary men, women, and children, and the only reason that they were killed was because they were Tutsi. Virtually the entire world turned away and did almost nothing to stop the genocide. In retrospect, it all looks very clear, but at the time, what was happening in Rwanda, the situation was unclear. They cannot tell me that they didn't know. Everybody knew what was happening. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we come to your word and it tells us things that make our hearts warm. It speaks of your love and your grace and your kindness. Sometimes we come to your word and it speaks of things that make our hearts tremble. It speaks of your anger, your wrath, your judgment. Father, we ask you to be with us as we look at your word today that we might see you fairly, that we might see you clearly, that we might understand the depth of your love for us and the fierceness of your wrath towards sin, and that seeing you, we might love you deeply. We ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the last, oh, for those of you who don't regularly come here, we are, you know, visiting or, or just intermittent visitors. Um, we typically preach our way through a book of the Bible. And on our preaching calendar has been the book of Joshua for the last couple of months. And each time we come across one, and book of Joshua often has these statements, you know, Joshua or the Israelites killed them all, men, women, and children. They destroyed the city. And each time I've been postponing it, I said, look, we're going to focus on something else today. Eventually, we're going to look at this, some other point. Now, I had hoped it would be a week when Pastor David was preaching. (laughs) But he ran off to East Asia for a few weeks, and so here we are. And you really can't avoid it any longer. Take a look at the text in front of you, Joshua chapter 10, verses 16 to 43. Ten times the author draws attention to Joshua killing all the people. You see, Joshua chapter 10, verse 20. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But the few who were left reached their fortified cities. Joshua chapter 10, verse 26. Joshua struck and killed the kings and and hung them on five trees, and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. Joshua chapter 10, verse 28. 
He put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors. And he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Joshua chapter 10, verse 30. The city and everything in it, Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. Joshua 10, verse 32. The city and everyone in it, he put to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. Joshua chapter 10, verse 33. Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. Joshua 10, verse 34. No, verse 35. They captured it, that, the city that same day, and they put it to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it, just as they had done to Lachish. Chapter 10, verse 37. They took the city and put it to the sword, together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors, just as at Eglon, they totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Chapter 10, verse 39. They took the city its king and its villages, and they put them to the sword. Everyone in it, they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. And so the summary statement, the tenth repetition of this theme in verse 40. So Joshua subdued the whole region. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And it's got to be that last statement that troubles us most deeply. Just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. All these kings in their lands, Joshua conquered in one campaign. Why? Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Now, this is a tough conversation to have. It's tough to have this sort of conversation on a Sunday because, look, this is the weekend. And we put up with a lot of stuff during the week. And we finally get to the weekend, and the weekend is a time to hang out with friends. It's a time to play ultimate. It's a time to eat lunch together. It's a time to have fun. It's not a time to be intense and be serious. This is a tough conversation to have also is because, basically, we all have this, in America we have this kind of, quiet, tacit agreement amongst one another not to talk about this stuff, not to talk about this side of God. Now, those of you who did not grow up in Massachusetts may not be aware of this, but those of you who are in school in Massachusetts, you know if you're in high school, you're probably, I mean, my sons in high school had to read Jonathan Edwards, one of the early Christian leaders in Massachusetts, in Northampton, they had to read his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that day, you could talk about this kind of thing. In fact, Jonathan Edwards kind of went overboard, was very picturesque, uh, pictured sinners, pictured the people in his church being like spiders hanging by a thread over the flames of hell. And at any moment, a brief breeze could blow up and they'd be destroyed. And he, and he could preach like that. And the church, eventually the church fired him, but for other reasons. At that point, after that sermon, the church didn't fire him. They actually repented. And he hadn't even asked them to repent. He was going to wait until next week to cover that part of it. He hadn't preached grace. But he preached judgment. And they were so afraid of, uh, or, or so in awe of this fierce God. 
that instinctively, as the Spirit worked on their hearts, they threw themselves on God's mercy. And revival broke out. One of the two famous revivals in American history started at that time because people were fearful of a holy God who could tolerate no sin. But we can't, we have a tacit agreement. We won't talk about these things today. I just, you know, those of you who come here regularly, you know I mention this every so often. I read a book, I read a sociological study of the American church or an anthropological study of the American church, and they all mention this. Well, as it happens, I found another book written in 2012. I ordered it online. And on page one, it says that very thing. The author comments on his study of youth ministry and churches as a whole. He comments on page one. Even in theologically conservative churches, Churches like ours, Bible churches, you won't hear much about guilt or suffering or judgment. We have this tacit agreement. Now, it means we have to switch from preaching Bible to preaching topics, right? You can't preach your way through the Bible. You don't go very far before you hear some warning about judgment. So if you want to avoid judgment, you really have to hop, skip, and jump throughout Scripture. And the easiest way to do that is to resort to topical sermons. But... It wasn't my design. Somebody else has designed a preaching roster here that we go through books of the Bible and we can't really avoid it here at ten times. This, this half of this chapter ten basically says very little else other than Joshua moved from point A to point B and destroyed every living thing. And then he moved from point B to point C and he destroyed every living thing. So now we have to really look at this idea. Does God condone genocide? Does God tolerate this sort of thing? The sort of thing that happened in Rwanda. 100 days. Well, let's face it, actually. 100 days, 800,000 people died. I mean, that's far more vigorous than what happened in Joshua's, but we'll get to that in a moment. You know, we don't go looking to talk about judgment. But the question is, when it comes up in the text, can we skip it? Can we custom design the God, God to be the way we want him to be? First of all, do we have the skill to design an appropriate God? You know, is that above our pay scale? Or do we really have the wisdom to decide, okay, this is what God should be like? But even if we thought we had that much wisdom, do we have the authority to design? You know what scripture calls it when we design our own gods. I mean, let's face it, we all tend to design our own gods, all right? And then we go to scripture to be rebuked by it, because scripture calls that idolatry. No, the Old Testament was full of people that designed their own God. We can do it. But the question is whether God will accept that or whether it makes our figure to make it worse rather than better. Can we avoid discussions of judgment? Remember what God said to Ezekiel? When God was about to punish his people, the nation of Israel, and throw them into exile, God called the prophet Ezekiel to preach to his people to warn them one last time. And God said this to Ezekiel. I've made you a watchman. I've made you a guard, a night watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, but I'll hold you accountable for his blood. 
If you do warn the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will still die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. You know, this conspiracy of silence that the American church has is dangerous. It's dangerous for two groups of people. It's dangerous to those, for those to whom God seeks to speak. Because when God speaks judgment, it's always an exhortation to repent. It's always an invitation to salvation. And so if we avoid the word of judgment, then we hide from people the opportunity and the need for repentance. We hide from them the opportunity and need for salvation. So it's dangerous for them. But according to what God told Ezekiel, it's dangerous for the American church as well. Because God's given us his word. And some parts of his words, of his word are warm and fuzzy. and God's love and his mercy and his grace. But some parts of his word are severe. It's a healing severity. Redemptive severity, but it's still severe. And God says, if we skip over those, because people don't want to hear them, then it's not only dangerous for them, it's dangerous for us. So let us look together at this text. We see that God brought judgment. God commanded Joshua to bring judgment on these people. And so it's legitimate for us to ask, does God condone genocide? Now I have, I will not offer you a fully satisfying answer to this, but I will at least offer you five reflections on it. First of all, and this is important to get our, set our attitude right. This is a hugely ironic question for us to pose to God. Think of this, the irony. The United Nations defines a major war as a war that entails a minimum of 1,000 battlefield deaths. That's a war. In the year 2003, there were 15 wars going on concurrently in our world and two dozen lesser actions that don't qualify as war because a thousand people had not yet died on a battlefield. It's ironic that we should hold God to such a standard when we cannot hold ourselves to the same standard. In World War I, an estimated 5% of the victims of war were non-combatants. Now, an estimated 75% of victims of war are non-combatants. Think about Rwanda. Incredible. A hundred days, 800,000 victims, without, mostly without the use of modern weaponry. 800,000 people hacked to death. Who are human beings to complain about God or about the violence of nature? There's a website, globalsecurity.com. 59 countries are currently involved in war. And 342 warring factions are involved in those 59, battle, 59 regions. 
Maybe before we hold God accountable, we should hold one another accountable. Hold ourselves accountable. It's a bitter irony that with our history as human beings, that we hold God accountable. Now, secondly, the second caveat I would put out here is that it would be easy to dismiss this as Old Testament God. But let me read to you from the New Testament. This is not just the Old Testament. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Jesus is talking to a group of people, and there had been a recent slaughter of pilgrims. People had come to make offerings. Galileans had come to make offerings in the temple, and Pilate, the Roman authority, had slaughtered them, had killed them. And Jesus says, in the midst of that violence, Jesus is asked in verse 2, Luke chapter 13, Do you think that these Galileans who died were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? I, I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. And there had been a group in the town that a tower had fallen, poor construction, a tower had fallen and killed some people. And Jesus continues and said, oh, oh, how about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? I, I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. This is not some warmongering general from the Old Testament. This is not the Old Testament Joshua. This is the New Testament Joshua, Jesus. And he warns. Matthew chapter 24, he was talking to his disciples and the crowds about what was coming. And then he warns of a time where they would see an abomination that causes desolation, whatever. Verse 16, he says this, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If anyone's on the roof of his house, they basically you know, sleep or eat on the roof of the house because it was cooler. Let anyone on the roof of his house, let no one on the roof of his house delay it, even go down to take anything out of the house. Anyone in the field, don't go back and get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you will not have to flee in the winter or on the Sabbath. There will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. If those days had not been shortened, no one would survive. Jesus warns of judgment, of destruction. This is not just Old Testament. This is Jesus. A third point I would make is that this is not genocide, what goes on in Joshua. What goes on in Joshua is not genocide. The Canaanites are not being killed simply because they're Canaanites. They are being killed because they're depraved. Remember what God had told Abraham. As God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, God looks ahead and predicts the future of Abraham and his descendants and his people. And he says, look, I have a land for you. The land of Canaan. But I'm not going to give you that land yet. Because these people, while they're wicked, their sins hasn't yet reached its full measure. Genesis 15, 16. In the fourth generation, a hundred years from now, your descendants will come back to the land. 
and I will give them the land of Canaan. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God is patient, not willing that any should die. He gives them time for repentance, but God tracks sin. And he says to Abraham, these people are not going to repent. And a century from now, I will have had enough of their wickedness, and I will send you in to destroy them as an act of judgment. This is not genocide. They're not being killed because of their race or their ethnicity. They're being killed because of their sin. It's not genocide because they're not being killed simply because they're Canaanites. Because God will turn around and make that same warning to his own people, the Israelites. Leviticus chapter 20 God tells Moses, say to the Israelites, any Israelite living in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech must be put to death. The Canaanites offered their children in sacrifice to their gods. That was one form of their wickedness. They wanted to appease their gods. They wanted to get their gods intervention in their lives. They would offer their children, they would sacrifice their children. They would kill their children as an act of worship to their god. And God predicts the time when Israel will do that kind of thing. Or he warns them against it. He says, any Israelite who gives any of his children to Molech must be put to death. The people of the community are to stone him. I will set my face against that man. I will cut him off from his people. If the people of the community close their eyes when that man gives one of his children to Molech, and they fail to put him to death, I will set my face against that man and his family and will cut off from their people both him and all who follow him in prostituting themselves to this God. This is not genocide, because first of all, God kills the Canaanites not because of their ethnicity, but because of their sin. And it's not genocide, because secondly, God kills Israel itself if they commit similar sins. So there's no accusation, no relevance to the accusation of genocide here. Consider what God had told Moses in Numbers 33. 33, 55, and 56. Why did God want the Canaanites driven out of the land? God told Israel, If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. And I will do to you what I plan to do to them. You see his point? He told Joshua to drive out those nations because otherwise those corrupt nations would corrupt Joshua and the Israelites. And God said, if you, get, if you are corrupted, if you worship the gods they worship and the way they worship, if you offer your children, if you worship other gods, then God says, I will do to you, my people, what I'm going to do to them. This is not genocide. This is holiness and justice. God condemns sin, whether that sin is performed by Canaanites or whether it's performed by Israelites. God condemns the sin. And the people of Israel ignored God. So in 722 BCE, God brought in the Assyrian army and they destroyed the northern half of Israel, dragged some of, them into leader, dragged some of the leaders into exile, destroyed their cities, burned down their walls, killed a large number of the populace. And the ten northern tribes of Israel ceased to exist. 
There are no more, they are no more ethnically defined Israel. That left just the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes, also ignored God and engaged in wickedness and in evil. And in 586 BCE, God brought the Babylonians in and they destroyed the southern kingdom. God said, if you live like the Canaanites, I will do to you what I plan to do to them. It was not a genocide. It was justice. Israel lived like the Canaanites, and God did to them what, he, what Joshua did to the Canaanites. Then God, in his mercy, brought Israel back to the land. And God warned them again, turn to me. Love me, obey me, serve me, live righteously toward me, live righteously toward each other. And again, the people disregarded God. And for four centuries, he warned them. And finally, in 70 CE, 70 AD, God called the Romans in and they destroyed the nation of Israel for the next two millennia. There was no more Israel. This is not genocide. This is justice. God warns his people. Live holy before me, treat each other right, or there will be judgment. It's not genocide, it's holiness. And so that's really where we start. My fourth observation is this. Really, in in one way, it's the first positive step forward. This is not genocide. This is divine totalitarianism. Now, if we want to ask if this is justified, we've got, what are we trying to justify? Now, I know some of you guys are in junior high here, but my older brother learned totalitarian. He learned the word totalitarian when he was in fifth grade. So I had to learn it in fourth grade because he and my father were talking about totalitarianism. You know, so, so if I learned it in fourth grade, you can learn it in fifth or sixth. It's okay. You know, it helps you on your SATs. This is, oh, yeah. It also helps you to know God better, but, you know, whichever motivation is stronger in your life right now, we'll work on that. This is God as, you could say, dictator, autocrat. This is God as, we could call him, God. This is God as the ruler of the universe. So our question should not be, does God condone genocide? Because it's not genocide. The question is, can God punish sin? Can he invoke the ultimate punishment on sin? Does he have the authority? Does he have the right to do that? Can God legitimately rule this world? Tell us how to live, how to respond to him, how to treat each other, and hold us ultimately accountable if we don't live that way. Is he allowed to be Lord of the universe? Now, as Americans, our instinctive response is, no, not really. Because we value, you know, the individual authority. How can God treat people this way? For us, our world uh, focuses on the individual. Individual autonomy, individual authority, respect for the individual. But I would argue that scripture gives us three reasons why divine totalitarianism is legitimate. First of all, God created the world. He is its sovereign. He's the one who made it. 
By virtue of his creation, he has authority over it. All things answer to God. It's his perfectly legitimate right. And so if you notice in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, here is where Romans 1 starts. What is this, Romans 1, 18. What is the sin of man? That God created him and he did not respect God as his creator. This is the first reason why divine totalitarianism is legitimate. Because God made it. This world belongs to him. It's all responsible to respond to him. The second reason why God is allowed to be totalitarian is that God is just. This is not arbitrary. God holds everybody to the same standards. He's not favoring some group over another. And his standards are right and pure and holy and just. He asks of two things of us. One is he asks that we love him in response to his love for us. And the other thing he asks is that we treat each other rightly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love one another as yourself. All, everything else is subsumed under this. These are the two things he asks of us. He's given us his love. He's given us his grace. And he says, in response, these are the two things I expect of you. He holds all of us to the same standards. The standard is just. God is creator. God is just. But here, I think, is the most compelling reason why God has the authority to be totalitarian. Because when it ultimately came time to hold mankind accountable, God did not turn his wrath against mankind. God turned his wrath toward himself, toward his son. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You know, in the Old Testament, God had warned, if you live this way, I will destroy you. And so God's people lived that way, and God's enemies lived that way. And instead of destroying them, God surrendered his own son, Jesus offered himself to the cross. This is unlike any form of totalitarianism we see in our world. But ultimately... It's what gives God vindication. That he sent his son, that Jesus offered himself to take the judgment due us. This is the ultimate justification for divine totalitarianism. Is that God did not use it for his own ends, but he suffered its consequences on himself. The final point I would make about this passage and about the whole concept of divine totalitarianism is this. If we grasp hold of this aspect of God's character, it will change our lives. Let me give you three ways that it will change our lives. First of all, if you're not a believer, if you have never given your life to Christ, here is how it would change your life. This is the word of God to those who don't acknowledge him and love and serve him. This is an invitation to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Love him and worship him. Care for others. God's word of judgment is never a word of condemnation. It's always a word of exhortation. It's always a word that comes to us and says, this is what will happen if but it doesn't need to happen. 
Christ has died for our sin so that we can have forgiveness by surrendering our lives to Christ. If we grab hold of the severity of God's judgment, it will do for us what it did for Jonathan Edwards' congregation. It will turn our hearts toward him for his mercy and for his forgiveness. The second way this can change our lives is for those of us who are already Christians. You know, I started out this sermon by mentioning that we don't talk about judgment anymore. What we do is we talk about grace. But we distort grace. We stick it full of our own meaning. We, we make it relativistic. You know, grace will overlook all my sins. God will forgive me. It doesn't really matter how I live. And just this week, I read another book review of a, of a new book of a, of a famous author. Most of you would recognize the name if I gave it to you. I won't give it to you. But the book blurb says, you know, there's an article about the book, a a promotional article, before the book is really available. You can pre-order it on Amazon. And the, the, but the, the title of the article is this. So and so, you know, the author, goes overboard on grace. Whoa. No, 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 no. We should never go overboard on grace. We should get on board with grace, but go overboard with grace. God said to his people, the Israelites, if you live like Canaanites, you'll suffer the same fate that the Canaanites suffered. God says to his church, if you live like the world, you'll suffer the same fate that the world will suffer. Christ died to deliver us from that. We can't count on grace to save us from Judgment, if we continue to live like we've never seen grace or received grace. Grace transforms us. It doesn't just save us, it transforms us. And if we're not transformed, it's really dubious whether we've been saved in the first place. If we grab hold of the severity of God's wrath, we will see in Christ also the depth of his love And we will live for him. We will not take his grace lightly and take it for granted. The third point I would make from this passage is what it says to the rest of the world. What it says to those who don't know Christ. What it says to those who do know Christ. And what it says about the rest of the world. A fair bit of the world today is still in the position of the Canaanites. And God has invited us to be part of bringing them into his kingdom. Sometimes that will be costly. In 2013, for our missions conference, it looks like, it's not yet confirmed, but it looks like we're going to have uh, Libby Little. I don't know that it's confirmed yet, but it looks like we're going to have Libby Little speak. Um, Libby Libby Little was married to Tom Little. They spent 30 years, not as missionaries, they spent 30 years, uh, he was an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, ophthalmologist, I think. They spent 30 years in Afghanistan serving the people of Afghanistan. 30 years. Now, if you know anything about history, that meant they were there before the Russian invasion. They were there during the Russian invasion. They stayed there during the Taliban takeover. 30 years. 
They served the people of Afghanistan. Now, they could not be called missionaries that would put everybody in jeopardy. And their primary work was caring for the needs of people who couldn't see or needed eye treatment. 30 years. Now, 2010, he was one, uh, Tom was one of six people captured by Taliban or whoever and executed after 30 years. Now, what is it going to take? Now, see, they weren't missionaries. But what is it going to take if the Muslim world is ever going to come to faith? What is it going to take? Remember three or four weeks ago I mentioned what it took for you all to come to faith? You do realize it took hundreds of years of missionaries being in China? And then it took the death? Oh, it took thousands of missionaries... It took the death of a couple of hundred missionaries. It took the death of thousands upon thousands of national Christians for the gospel to penetrate China and to reach your ancestors. Do you suppose the gospel is ever going to penetrate the Muslim world unless somebody pays a similar price? This text tells us that before the unevangelized world, there are two options. There's the grace and mercy and glory of God, or there's judgment. And in fact, right now, before most of the unevangelized world, there's only one option, because they haven't heard the gospel. This text tells us of the severity of God as an exhortation to come to his mercy. If you're not a believer yet, hear the word of God. His severity is not destined to be your fate. Your fate is in your hands. If you're a believer, remember that God treated Israelites the same way he treated Canaanites for the same reason. We cannot presume upon his grace and assume that we'll be safe. And all of us together, let us think about the fate of those who have not heard, who do not know the glory of God or the mercy of Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we would truly like to make you into a God who does everything we want, and doesn't ask us to do anything you want. And yet we see in you a God who called his son to do everything you want and then to die for those who would do nothing you want. Father, help us, help all of us to find in you the mercy of Jesus that we might not face his wrath. In his name we pray. Amen.